If you have been with us the past several weeks, we have been in our series, Habits of the House, and this week we are finishing out our series. We've been talking about the fact that uh, the reality is that our habits do ultimately shape the people that we become, that our habits do shape the people we become, and really that our habits and, and ultimately our lives should reflect and should imitate the very nature and character of God. That you and I, we have the ability to reflect the very nature of the God that we serve. And so our habits should be ones that produce life. Our our habits should be ones that push us and propel us forward. Our habits should strengthen our resolve to Jesus. And yet, if we are being honest this morning, and I'm an honest gal, I try to be, I will tell you that habits are hard. Just plain and simple, habits are hard. The thing about habits is that they can be hard to stick to. And you know this, if um, maybe at the beginning of the year, you're like, I'm going to eat healthy this year, I'm going to do good, and then by January 6th, you're like in the Chick-fil-A drive-thru, you're making cookies at night, now y'all know my struggle, Pillsbury cookies, but listen, it is tough. Maybe you know this if you said, hey, I'm going to be in the gym every other day. And then you, um, you forgot that one day, you know, you forgot, and then it was like the tomorrow that never came, right? Habits are hard. Or the habits that we've talked about that are the values of this house, of Harbor, and really the values of, of all believers that we are called to, the habit of prioritizing the presence of God in our life, that we're called to the habit of... Uh, submitting our lives to scripture that we're called to the habit of living from a place of joyful generosity. And yet the truth is that sometimes sustaining the right kinds of habits is hard. Sustaining the right kinds of habits is hard. Now bad habits, those are easy. Those come without effort. Those come with ease. But the right kinds of habits take some sustaining power. And it can be challenging because the right kind of habit sustaining them requires longevity. It requires a certain level of endurance. It requires tenacity. It requires daily decisions, day by day by day. And now, um, I don't know about you guys, but I am not much of a runner, okay? I am not much of a jogger. I would say I'm like a struggling jogger, um, but my dad, he's a runner, and on occasion, occasion being the key word, very sporadic occasion, I will go and uh, jog with my dad while he runs. I watch him run ahead, and uh, every time, we'll go out to Benderson, if you're not familiar, it's about three miles around. That's hefty for your girl. Uh, It's about three miles around, and every time, without fail, I'm telling you, every time, my dad is consistent, He'll say, Ash, you don't have to be fast. You just have to finish. You don't have to be the fastest. You just have to have the stamina to carry on. You just have to build the endurance to keep going. And the same is required. The same is true in our walk with Jesus, that Jesus never called us to be the fastest. He never required of us that we were the most impressive. He just requires the endurance to carry on. He just requires the um, showing up. He just requires that we keep on going, that there is a consistency that is required of us 
that you just keep showing up. And I don't know about you, but like, I'm in this thing for the long haul. Like, like I'm committed to Jesus, and yet I'm not naive to the fact that there are seasons of weariness, that there are challenging moments. Anyone in the room relate? That there are moments in life that it feels like this is going to be a tough one to overcome. And so this week, I was just asking the Lord, like, God, truly, how do we have longevity in our faith? How, how do we have longevity to the things that you've called us to? How do we have longevity in, in stewarding what you've given us? Because we're in this for the long haul. I'm speaking that over your life, that you're in this for the long haul, that you're not walking out, that you're not quitting now. We're keeping the faith. And so, God, how do we keep longevity? And so I was uh, just thinking about this passage in Philippians where Paul is, is writing. And if you are not familiar with the writings of Paul, this man is, he's just savage. Like he says the craziest stuff and then he just like keeps it moving, right? So Paul, he, he's writing to the church in Philippi because he's heard, he's heard, he, he's in prison writing this and he's heard that some of the Jewish believers back at the church of Philippi, they've been in this thing for a while. They are, after all, the chosen people. They're telling the non-Jewish believers, hey, you need to be circumcised. Hey, you need to do X, Y, and Z so that you can belong, so that you can be one of us. And Paul just stops them right in their tracks from afar through his writing. Paul stops them and he says, hey, listen, if anyone could brag, if anyone would be qualified, if anyone could show you what they've got, it would be me. I'm telling y'all, he says the craziest stuff. So Paul goes on a bragging rant. Listen to this. He says, he says, listen, I was circumcised when I was just eight days year, eight days old. I, I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. That means I'm as Hebrew as Hebrew gets, right? I, I was a Pharisee, meaning I stuck to the strictest uh, Jewish law. He says, as for righteousness, I've made it. As for righteousness, I've done it. As for keeping the word and, and the law of God, I've done it. He said, as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. But the thing is, but the thing is, I once thought these things were valuable. I once thought these things made me righteous. I once thought these things were important but now I consider them worthless. He, he's done all this, guys. He was a member of the Pharisees. He says, I count all of it worthless. It means nothing. It accounts for nothing because of what Christ has done. Like in view of what Christ has done, what I've done is worthless, the translation is a bit of a more dirty word, but he's saying it's like worthless rags. It means nothing in comparison to what Christ has done. It means nothing. And he's expressing this reality that he is no longer living from this place of what he once saw as his own righteousness, as what he once saw as his own goodness or his own worthiness, but by the righteousness that comes only through faith in what Jesus did, in what Jesus accomplished for him. And from that place of understanding, he says in Philippians 3, 13, no, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it. 
he just went off on this bragging tangent and he says, listen, I have not achieved it. I have not achieved my own righteousness. I have not achieved my own worthiness. I have not reached perfection, but, he, but I focus on this one thing. Listen up. I focus on this one thing. What does Paul says? He says, forgetting the past, forgetting his failures and his accomplishments, forgetting it all, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the, the end of the race. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Jesus Christ, is calling us. That he's calling us. Meaning whatever righteousness they thought they had earned on their own, they haven't yet. That we are in a race that we are um, striding on to reach the prize for which we are called heavenward. And he uses this picture of a race, of this long distance race that is only completed when called on to heaven. He says, I press on. I press on. And then coming from our main passage today in Hebrews, which scholars believe Paul to have also written, it may have been someone else, but a lot of people believe it was Paul. He's encouraging another group of believers that in light of all that they know Jesus to be, and all that they've seen Jesus do to keep on going, to press on, to keep the faith. He says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. And in chapter 10, verse 35, he says, patient endurance is what you need now so that you will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive, then you will receive all that he has promised for in just a little while, the coming one will come and not delay and my righteous ones will live by faith, but I will take no pleasure in anyone who turns away. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. And so that's what I was asking God this week. Like truly we hear this, but how do we run with endurance? Like how do we have longevity on the days that are really hard, on the devastating moments of life? How do we have longevity in our faith? The first is by looking to the ones who have come before us, by looking to those who have already run the race. See, prior to this let us run the race statement, he's given reason for running the race. He, he's telling them why they should continue on with patient endurance. He says, here's the reason. He says, since we are surrounded by so great a crowd of witnesses. And some versions say so great a cloud of witnesses to the life of faith. It's talking about all those who have gone before us, all those who have reached heaven and are cheering us on because they understand the incomparable prize that is awaiting us. They understand the fullness of the presence of our living God. 
And so he says, therefore, since they are surrounding us, cheering us on, saying, hey, it's so worth it, continue on. This cloud of witnesses, it's reference to the long list that he's given just one chapter before of actual examples. You know, like when you, you know, when you need like actual reasons and you'd be like, God, show me like actual people who have made, me, made it through this. Like, like I need, I need time and place. I need real people. Like I need to see. And here it is. It is a long list that he gives of those who have come before us and have faithfully done it. That they've faithfully done it. It's, it's a list of the obedience that they were called to, uh, of the trust that was required of them, of the surrender that was asked of them. And he's like, hey, these are the ones who have gone before you. These are the ones who have gone before you and finished the race. They have faithfully overcome This is all the evidence you need that whatever you're going through right now in this moment, that it has been faced and overcome through the power of Jesus living inside of them. And I just love this because in all honesty, we have these moments in life where it's like, God, um, what is this cup of wrath that you have given me? No one else has ever experienced this. This is awful. And it's, it's really tough moments. And listen, I don't want to downplay the heartbreaks that life throw at us. I am not downplaying the moments of grief that feel like, God, how am I going to overcome this? God, how am I going to make it through this? I am not downplaying this, but I want to give hope to your spirit this morning that there are those who have run the race with exactly the challenges that you're standing in today and have faithfully overcome it, have faithfully walked through, not through their own strength, but through the power of the spirit that actually lives inside of us. And that is great to know that it's not a singular experience because when we're struggling, it can feel like I'm the only one in this. God, where are the people who understand what I'm walking through? Where are they? And the thing that really encourages my heart when I feel weary is knowing that you and I, we stand on the faithfulness of those who have come before us. We stand on their faithfulness. You stand on the faithfulness of those who have come before you. I often think of um, my Nana, who has been a minister of the gospel for over 34 years now. And I just so appreciate her because she understands the pain of obedience. She understands the weight of sacrifice of following Jesus. And I'll often call her when I'm like, I don't think I can do this, Lord. And I just picture it's like a relay race where she's given me the baton. And she says, hey, it's your turn. And I have her faithfulness. She's already done her turn. She's already walked out faithfulness and I'm not going to let her down yet. And I know that there are people in your life that you can look to and say, I'm not going to let them down yet. They have run their race and it's my turn. It's your turn that we have their faithfulness that we're standing on. And I just love that we, we have the this incredible moment where our faith is strengthened on the stories of those who have come before us, on the faithfulness that they walked out and on the faithfulness of God to them. And so here we, we have this incredible list. It's this incredible list in Hebrews 11 of those who have faithfully run the race before us. 
They have faithfully walked it out. It's known as the hall of faith or the hall of, um, or the heroes of the faith. And this is the list that the writer is referencing as the cloud of witnesses. And I think sometimes we're like heroes of the faith. Well, of course they made it in. It's Moses, it's Abraham, it's Sarah. But these were everyday, ordinary people like you and I who had a decision to be obedient, who had a decision to trust, who had a decision to surrender. Everything you and I face today has already been overcome. And so I'm going to read you a little bit of this passage. I took out a lot because it's a lot, but I encourage you when you go home, read all of Hebrews chapter 11. It will strengthen your faith. But listen to this, lean in. It says, through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. For it was by faith that Abraham obeyed God when he called him to leave home to go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. So when God's calling you and asking you to do something and you don't know the end result yet, Abraham's done it. And when he reached the land God promised him, he lived there by faith. For he was like a foreigner living in tents. So even sometimes when you're in the place God has called you to and it still feels foreign and it still feels like, did I hear you right, God? Abraham knows it. It was by faith that Sarah was even able to have a child, though she was barren and was too old, she believed that God would keep his promise. And so a whole nation came from this one man and woman who was as good as dead, who was as good as dead. When you have dreams that feel as though they are as good as dead, look at Sarah and Abraham. A whole nation with so many people that like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, there was no way to count them. From one small dream, from one small promise, the faithfulness of God. It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who'd received God's promise, was ready to sacrifice his only son. So if you're in a place where God is asking you to surrender something, Abraham's done it. Abraham's done it. Even though God had told him that Isaac is the son through which your descendants will be counted, Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God would be able to bring him back to life again. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, for he chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. That means whatever environment that you've grown up in, whatever environment you're in now that you have the ability to overcome, that you have the ability to choose righteousness. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt for he was looking ahead to his great reward. It was by faith that Moses left the land of Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who was invisible. He kept his eyes on the one who was invisible when he couldn't see it. It was by faith that the people of Israel went right through the Red Sea as though they were standing on dry ground. But when the Egyptians tried to follow, they were all drowned. It was by faith that the people of Israel marched toward Jericho for seven days and the walls came crashing down. They were obedient when it didn't make sense. How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Japheth, David, uh, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. 
By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, received what God had promised them. They shut the the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength, and they became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back from the dead, but others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Therefore, since you are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses to the life of faith, would you throw off every sin that entangles you and trips you up so that we can run with endurance the race God has set before us? Therefore, you see it, everything you face has already been overcome. Not only do we have longevity in our faith by looking to those who have already come before us, but by also looking to those who are running with us, who, who are right here in the midst of it with us. I don't know if you've ever heard of Elia Kachobi, but he was the first, and is, he's still alive, he's the first human in history, in all of history, to run a marathon in under two hours. 26 miles in under two hours. He did this in 2019, and it's incredible to watch as he comes through the finish line. And really, it's, it's a test of endurance if there ever was one. It's a test of the long haul if there ever was one. But the thing that got me most is as you're watching this, Eliot has other interchangeable runners that come alongside him. So all throughout the race, they can't keep the pace that he can keep for that long, but they come in and they strengthen him. And another com- group comes in and they strengthen him. And another group comes in and they strengthen him. And their one goal is to help him keep the pace. Their one goal is to make sure he doesn't fall behind, to make sure he doesn't speed up and lose his strength too early. They are helping him set the pace. And as he crosses the finish line, all of these runners, there's like 30 of them, they come and they huddle around him. And it's as if it's their win. It's as if it's their victory. It's as if they made history. And it's this incredible moment where you see that through in the life of faith that we need others around us who are helping us set the pace. Billy was telling me, and I asked him, I said, do you think he could have done it without them? And he said, you know, for a person of his skill, he probably could, but he also probably might not have been able to do it. Because instead of focusing on what God had called him to, he would have been in his head saying, am I doing it right? Am I too far ahead? Am I losing my energy too early? The people beside him helped him keep the pace to ensure that he crossed the finish line, to ensure that he ran the race that was set before him. And the same is true in the spiritual race that you and I are in, that we're called to do this alongside people that help set the pace, that encourage us when we're trying to sit out earlier, when we're trying to slow down or we're saying, I don't have the strength to carry on any longer. They were there to hold him up in moments of weariness. And that's what you and I are called to do for one another to hold each other up when we feel like I can't go any further, to hold each other up when the lies start to creep in, to hold each other up and say, you know what? You still can do this. You still can walk this out with obedience. And I don't know about you, but often when I'm weary, when I'm trying to walk this out and I'm weary, when I'm most unsure of how to carry on, I find myself wanting to isolate. 
and saying, you know what, I just need to be alone. And can I tell you, that is one of the worst lies that we have bought into because isolation perpetuates the problem. Isolation, everything is multiplied in the context of isolation. You started out with fear and now you're isolated and you're in despair. You started out with insecurity and now you're isolated and it's turned into despair. You you started out being unsure and I don't know what to do and now I'm gonna isolate myself because I need to be alone and now it's despair. Everything is magnetized in the context of our isolation. Everything is. And I'm telling you that from a person who loves to be alone, that I've had to learn that isolation only magnifies what I'm struggling with. Isolation only turns to despair what could have been solved with the help of another believer. And so God has actually created us and formed us to be in the safety of community with other believers. In Hebrews, the writer says in verse Uh, In chapter 10, verse 24, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works, and let us not neglect our meeting together as some do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Encourage one another. Think of ways. That means there's an intention behind it. Think of ways to motivate one another, to not just care about our own life, but to look at the life of the people around us and say, hey, I care enough about you that I'm going to be intentional to motivate you towards what God is asking you. And he says in chapter 12, verse 15, look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out so that no poisonous root of bitterness takes root and grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Look after each other. And this comes when we grasp the reality that in Christ we actually belong to one another. We're the family of God. And I remember a few weeks ago, uh, God kind of showed me that. And it hit me just like it never has before. Like, we're the family of God. You and I, we belong to one another. That means when you win, I win. When you're obedient, I celebrate it. When I'm obedient, you, you celebrate it because we actually belong to one another. We are the family of God. The same way that I would for my own brother sitting in the room, I want to look at you and have the same level of love and care and belief in you. That we are actually the family of God. So when we see people being uh, truly who they've been called to be in Christ, let's celebrate it. When people are being obedient, when we see Kristen leading in anointing, when we see Grace leading with her love and personality, when we see Prue loving people like no one else I know, that's my win. That's your win because we are the family of God. We are the family of God. And there is freedom that's found in the context of our community in the context of our community. And I just felt the Lord tell me a few weeks ago, like in your friendships, don't let it pass you by, but actually say like, how are you doing with the Lord? What is God teaching you? Our friendships aren't just for the fun of life, but to actually say like, how are you doing with the Lord? Because sometimes we're shocked when the people that were once our friends are far away from God. Did we care enough to say, how are you doing? What is God teaching you? Where are you at in your faith? to care enough to say, how are you doing to have uncomfortable conversations? 
We're getting on a really practical level. Next week is groups. I want you to sign up. Life was not meant to be lived alone. This is not where you're going to see the fullness of your growth. It's in homes, bringing all that you have. It's, it's being vulnerable. It's saying, hey, here's what I'm struggling with. So we're called to care for one another. Not only are we called to look, not only are we strengthened by looking at those who have come before us and those who are running with us, but also by understanding that there are still those who are coming after us. There are still those who are coming after us. And the reality is that our faith is not singular, but it's sown. Our faith is not just affecting us. Our faith is sown into the lives of those who will follow us. The, your family, your children, the generations to come, your, your faith will be what they look to. And I have no idea what, where my children, or you know, when that will happen or whatever, but I want to believe that my faith is actually affecting those who are going to come after me. For your children, your faith is so important. I say, like parents, there is such an anointing on being a parent that you would stand up and say, I'm anointed to raise these, raise these children. I'm anointed to bring these children up. I'm anointed to show them what faith looks like. That you and I have to understand that there are those who are following after us. That they will look to our faith. And if we forget that there are those who have come before us, we will also forget that there are those still to come after us. That our faith matters. And lastly and greatest of all, to run the race with endurance. Yes, we're looking to those who have come before. We're looking to those who we're running with. We're looking to those who are running after us, but we're looking at the one we're running to. We're looking at the one we're running to. Hebrews says, we do this. Let us run the race with endurance that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. In this series where we're talking about creating habits that imitate the character of God, I just felt like we should end by looking at the one we're imitating by looking at him and, and coming just to this posture of awe, coming to this posture of all of the one we're looking at because the reality is that sometimes we become weary trying to be like him because we're no longer just being with him. We're weary trying to be like him because we have stopped just being with him. We've become weary in our efforts to be the person we desire to be because we have stopped looking at the one we're trying to be like. And if we're not careful, we can just start living from this place of striving, from this place of doing it in my own strength, from this place of doing it on my own. But true rest comes with being with and in the communion of the one that we long to be like. That we wouldn't just try to imitate the character of God, but that we would just long to be with him. And in being with him, we actually become like him. And it's not as weary and it doesn't feel like we're doing it all in our own strength because when we're just in the presence of God, we actually become like him. 
last week and even this morning, just as we were singing, you're worthy of it all. And this morning we were singing worthy. There's just these moments in life where you're just in awe of who he is. That he is just worthy because. Just because that's who he is. Just because he's so worthy. Just because there's no one else like him. Just because no other place but the presence of God satisfies the way that he does. And I don't know about you, but I can find myself in this place of realizing that I have been around the things of God, but I have not been with God. I have been around the things that are good things, but I know when I haven't been with God. I know when I'm doing the things God's asked me to do, but I'm running on empty because I just haven't been with Him. I haven't been with the one that I'm trying to be like. And we can get in this place of doing and striving to be like Him, but we don't want to just be with Him and just be present with Him. And all He desires is that we offer Him our presence. I remember someone sharing that in America, a lot of times we'll walk past people and be like, how are you doing? And we're not actually asking. It's just kind of a passing comment. And I do it. We all do it. But I remember them saying like, God just wants us to actually offer us, offer him our presence. Like God, I'm not just saying, how's it going? I'm actually sitting and I'm just offering you my presence. That's what he desires. Because he knows when we become present in the presence of God that everything changes. That everything changes. That when we continually dwell with him, that we naturally become more like him. That we become like the one we behold. That we become like the one that we dwell with. And there's just those moments in life where you feel most sure of the hope that you have. That you feel like, I know with absolute certainty that He is true. And I had this moment last week as we were singing this song. And I feel like every single time that moment comes it comes in life is when we're just being in awe of Him. I have found no greater joy that compares to the moments where we're just in awe of Him. Like how worthy and holy and kind he is. And just being in awe of him. And I just want to leave you with this. To keep your gaze fixed on him. That like Paul or whatever the writer was. He said keep your, fi- your gaze fixed on Jesus. Keep your gaze fixed on Jesus. Just stay in awe of me. Just stay in awe of my kindness. Just stay in awe of my friendship. Just stay in awe of my worthiness. Just stay in awe of my holiness. And I never want what Jesus to be what Jesus did to become mundane in my heart. I never want what Jesus has accomplished for us to become mundane. And I want to leave you by reading these verses in Hebrews where he says, Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross disregarding its shame, and now he is seated at the place of honor beside God's throne. Verse 14, just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God 
deeper by the power of the eternal spirit. Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Verse 28, so also God offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to dwell, deal with our sin, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. Verse 10, for God's will was for us to be made whole. For God's will was to be for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all time. That was his will. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him for our guilty consciences have been covered with the blood of Jesus to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Would you stand with me this morning?